the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. I'm Seth Leibson. In today on the Town Hall Review, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. With the Iowa caucus upon us, Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley go head-to-head in a debate. When Nikki Haley was governor of South Carolina, she was the number one governor in America for Republicans of bringing China into her state. She wrote a love letter to the ambassador saying that they were a great friend. There's a video of her on the website right in front of a Chinese flag saying that she works for them now. The Speaker of the House joins us for a discussion of the House budget deal. This is a good deal under the given circumstances that we have, and it moves the ball forward. That's what we're about. We have to have incremental gains. And the separate effort to provide aid to Israel while securing the border. I feel very much like we're supposed to be administering an open fire hydrant. We'll look at the challenges and why there's an acute sense of urgency. This is the most intractable issue in American politics. We'll hear from Mark Morgan, acting director of ICE under President Trump. This administration took the most secure border in a lifetime and they intentionally unsecured it. We've got all this and more. I'm Seth Liebson coming to you from Phoenix and AM 960 The Patriot, where I host a program in the afternoons, Monday through Friday. Learn more and listen to my program at 960thepatriot.com or take a moment to follow me on Twitter at Seth Liebson, L-E-I-B-S-O-H-N, and follow this program as well at Town Hall Review. It's only January, but the 2024 presidential election cycle is upon us. Yes, it begins in Iowa on Monday. Based on the polling, former President Trump is still the prohibitive favorite. So he chose once again to sit out the last debate before the voting begins. CNN hosted this last one, a head-to-head affair with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley. When Nikki Haley was governor of South Carolina, she was the number one governor in America for Republicans of bringing China into her state. She wrote a love letter to the ambassador saying that they were a great friend. There's a video of her on the website right in front of a Chinese flag saying that she works for them now. The debate did get a bit feisty. You're going to see the fact that he has switched his um, policies multiple times, and we'll call that out tonight. But every time he lies, Drake University, don't turn this into a drinking game because you will be overserved by the end of the night. And they talked about the looming crisis on our nation's southern border. The number of people that will be amnestied when I'm president is zero. We cannot do an amnesty in this country. Uh, first of all, it's going to do is cause more people to want to come illegally. So you got to enforce the law. It's got to be consistent. People got to know it's there. This crisis on our southern border is looming large right now. We're going to stay with this for a bit today. I've been to the border recently. I can attest this is something on a level we have never seen before. We'll start with Byron York of the Washington Examiner. He joined Hugh Hewitt. Byron, if that bill, the immigration bill, comes out and it doesn't have a wall in it that's paid for and erected, do you think it's dead on arrival? I think it is. Here's the thing. The one thing I do worry about, certainly in the Senate, is you know that over the years there's been kind of a bipartisan consensus to throw money at immigration and pass bills that you can uh, characterize as being tough on immigration. And at the same time, 
there's been a bipartisan consensus not to do anything about it. So, I, you know, that still may have some appeal in the Senate. But um, the weird circumstances of this bill in which the president has insisted, I mean, we should say this is the most intractable issue in American politics. I mean, it's the most resistant to solution issue in American politics. And the president has insisted that it be tied to aid to Ukraine and to Israel. That is, there'll be no aid to Ukraine and Israel unless you solve the most intractable issue in American politics. So it's, there's there weird circumstances with this bill, and I'm still guessing that nothing is going to happen. I think it is intractable, and I know it is intractable if they don't put the wall in. I just, I just hope they realize, because I've done this four times, I think I've talked to you before, the Kyle effort, the Cornyn effort, the Rubio effort, I've done this four times. Each time they did not put in a wall, the Marco Rubio effort tried to pretend there was a wall and it got snuffed out and killed. And if there's no wall, there is no support on the right. It is that simple. Well, they did pass something called the Secure Fence Act. It was 19, 2007, I believe. Right. That was a standalone bill for 700 miles, and that was fine. It didn't get built because it was it had... Uh, an incomplete authorization and no appropriation. Well, yeah, it, they, they, they passed this bill, said we're going to build a big fence and it's going to be secure. And then, then and they, they didn't, didn't do, it. do it. And then people are tired of bait and switch. I really do think it's a dead end. <laughs> if the GOP gets this deal over the finish line, or if it gets the budget deal over the finish line, it will be due to the hard work of our new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, who's working with razor-thin majorities in the lower chamber of Congress. He, too, joined the Hugh Hewitt Show. Tell us about the budget deal. I'm in favor of it. I think conservatives got the best deal they could possibly get. But what's in it and why should people support it? Well, this is actually a good deal. It's not the deal that you and I would construct and write from the beginning. But everybody has to remember, we will literally have this month the smallest majority in the history of the U.S. Congress. I think there was one Congress, the 65th Congress in 1917, 107 years ago, that had a smaller margin. We'll be down to a one-vote margin, Hugh. So we have to deal in the realm of reality. We only control one-half of one-third of the federal government, right, one chamber of Congress. So under those circumstances, we got a really good deal here. It's the first cut to non-defense spending in many years. It significantly cuts the side agreements that were negotiated last year under the Fiscal Responsibility Act, the FRA, and replaces that with $16 billion in real spending cuts. We took $10 billion more out of the IRS flush fund and that the Biden administration fought so hard for. Uh, we, we took uh, uh, $16 billion total, but uh, 6.1 of that comes from the COVID-era slush fund. So we got a lot of money for the taxpayers that saved here. And at the end of the day, we got more for defense and we cut non-defense discretionary spending. That's always been a priority of ours. And that's what we that's what we're handed here. I'd like to focus in, if we could, on the IRS money, uh, Mr. Speaker. I, I thought it was crazy that we're giving that money to the IRS. Kevin McCarthy got a $10 billion clawback. Yours is $20 billion, Am I correct? Well, I got 10 additional billion, so 20 billion total. And and that is a significant thing because, as you know, that was a big focus of the Democrats uh, in, in, in recent months and in, in, in the last Congress. And so we're able to, to claw that back, and, and there's more of that to come. Now, I know you've got members in your caucus who wish it was more. Will they vote for it? Or alternatively, will you get enough Democrats to vote this because a government closure we will lose the House. We will lose the Senate if that happens. It's that simple. Well, that's right. We have to demonstrate that we can govern. And this is our uh, 
our our effort to do that. I think we will, Hugh, I think we'll pass this. The vast majority of the conference understands this is a good deal under the given circumstances that we have, and it moves the ball forward. That's what we're about. We have to have incremental gains. With a one-vote majority, a one-vote margin, um, we can't throw a Hail Mary pass on every play, right? It's three yards in a cloud of dust, and, and that's what we're doing, yard by yard, first down by first down to stay in this game. I, I believe if we can demonstrate we govern well, we are going to grow and expand this majority in the upcoming election cycle. I also think we're going to win the Senate back to the Republican Party and the White House as well. So we'll be in a totally different ball game next January, you know, a year from now. But right now, we've got to we've got to keep uh, advancing the ball up the field, and that's what this that's what this deal does. Have you personally endorsed anyone yet in the presidential race, Mr. Johnson? I, I did. I, I endorsed President Trump, and I, I believe he will be the nominee, and I'm convinced he's going to win the White House again. And that's is, is the former him. president helping you pass this must-pass deal? I, I'm planning to give him a call today to talk him through the details of it, but he, he and I have a very close relationship. He's been an enthusiastic supporter of my leadership here, and I expect he'll be doing that again. Well, it will be catastrophic if this fails. When does it come to a vote? Uh, that's a good question. Th- this is the to set the top line so that our appropriators can get in the room and hash out the actual appropriations bills. Uh, we've got that deadlines coming up, um, two tranches, the first one January 19th, the second February 2nd. Uh, so w- we are pedal to the metal, trying to get those bills produced and get them on the floor to vote. And I'm very optimistic that we can get this done. All right. Now I want to switch over to the immigration deal. I will oppose any deal that does not include a wall. Will there be a wall in the immigration deal that includes Israel and Ukraine funding? Oh, well, that's a great question. It's It really is about more than the wall, though. You're right. That's a critical priority. But we passed H.R. 2 uh, almost eight months ago, and that was our you know signature piece of legislation that secured the border because we restored the Remain in Mexico policy that worked so effectively under the Trump administration. We ended the catch and release program. You know, Secretary Mayorkas admitted uh, over the last week that 85 percent of the people that are coming across that border illegally are just released into the country. And I took 64, 64 of us, House Republicans, went down to Eagle Pass to the epicenter just last week and saw it with their own two eyes. It is an absolute catastrophe. So we, we've got to restore those policies that work. We do need to re- rebuild the wall, and we need to make sense of the asylum process and the uh, and the parole process that are broken. And I, that's what our bill did. It's been sitting on Chuck Schumer's desk for that many months collecting dust. Right now there's a negotiation in the Senate and between the White House and the Senate on some sort of, I guess, a proposal that would solve this. But we have yet to see the text of it. And I'll just say I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic, Hugh. We'll have to see what develops. Well, let, let me repeat, though, very specifically. I am looking for one thing and one thing only. If the wall is not in there, authorized and appropriated, construction underway before anything else kicks in. I mean, really, notwithstanding any other law language, you know the language to write, Mr. Speaker, I will be against it. Will that kind of language, that kind of guarantee of 900 miles of wall be in this bill or you will not support it? Well, we're, we're fighting for it vigorously. We, we tied the border fight. You mentioned Ukraine funding and all the supplemental funding. You know, the president came forward with his national security supplemental proposal, and we said those are not issues to be tied together. Israel and Ukraine are separate and distinct. We have to support Israel as a top priority. Ukraine's important as well. But we cannot be involved in securing the border of Ukraine or other nations until we secure our own. And so that border fight is coming, and we're going to die on that hill, Hugh. I mean, that is critically important to the American people. By the way, it's about an 80-20 issue. 80% of the country says it's an emergency or a serious issue that must be addressed. So we're fighting for it. The wall is a critical piece of that. 
But I'll tell you, the Remain in Mexico policy, for example, when we were down on the border, uh, the Border Patrol agents uh, and the sheriffs who are in charge of patrolling down there doing their dead level best, they said if the president would issue an executive order tomorrow to reinstate Remain in Mexico, they think that would stem the flow by like 70 percent. Because it would send a message around the world that we don't have an open welcome mat. You can't just come in here like this illegally. you got to stay in Mexico until your case is adjudicated. That alone is a simple fix that President Biden has refused to even acknowledge or, or do anything about. And it's well, well, I agree with that. There are a lot of things that are necessary but not sufficient. But the most necessary, the most necessary thing is the wall. And yeah. so if you're laying out the stuff on the hills on which you will die, You've got to, I think, communicate to the Senate that you're going to not support a deal that doesn't have the wall in it. Are you communicating that? I've, I've communicated it directly. I said all the elements of HR2, the functional equivalent of it in the wall, is a big piece of that, of, of course, with these other policy changes. But, you know, the, some of these policy changes are interlocking, and so you, you really need all of them to, to get that down. I, I'll tell you this. The chief deputy of the U.S. Border Patrol told us in his own words, we were down there. He said, I feel very much like we're supposed to be administering an open fire hydrant. He said, I don't need more buckets. I don't need more funding to process illegals. He said, I need them to turn off the flow. And that's what we are working to do in the wall. To your point, you would speak to that. Coming up. We've got to start enforcing the law. It's not enough just to secure our borders and go after the cartels. In the next segment of Town Hall Review, stay with us. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. I'm Seth Liebson in this week for Hugh. The maddening problem we're looking at in the crisis on the southern border is the fact that it didn't have to be this way. In fact, it wasn't this way under President Trump. As I noted just a few minutes ago, I've been there several times over the past several years. This, what I saw recently, was a willful, decisional effort to ignore the law. We'll turn now to Mark Morgan, who was director of ICE under President Trump. He was a guest of John Solomon's on his podcast. You saw every step of the way what the Biden administration was trying to do, which is to create an impossible situation at the border where we just get overrun. Now a moment of reckoning today. Speaker Johnson's down at the border with a large codel of uh, members of Congress. How important is that and what do we need to hear from the speaker to feel better? Look, this is the defining moment in the past three years. This is where right now, American people, they've got to demand that Republicans show the political strength, courage, and will to do the right thing, to force this administration, John, to reverse its open border policies that's jeopardizing every aspect of our nation's safety, health, and national security. This is what what we don't need. Kip Roy said this, so I'm paraphrasing what Congressman Royo said. What we don't need is just another meaningless photo op and dog and pony show. But look, I, I'm not saying that at this point that's what that is. The only way that they're going to show that that's not what's happening is that we need to hear something very specific from Speaker Johnson. He needs to be very clear and unequivocally what his demands are. And his demands should really be H.R. 2. 
H.R. 2 is the yeah. strongest piece of border security legislation that's been passed. And I get it. For political reasons, they don't want to say H.R. 2, but th- that's whatever. They-, they can play whatever political games they want. But we need to have key elements in H.R. 2 as part of the budget proposal that goes forward, meaning they've got to address and prevent the continuation of asylum fraud. They've got to end catch and release, make Secretary Mayorkas actually enforce a law with respect to detention and lawful removal of illegal aliens that are in the country. We need to also reinstate some form of the Remain in Mexico, and of course we need to build a wall, and we could go on and on with other elements of HR2. But John, if they do those things, and we hear that from Speaker Johnson, that he's saying the right things, the last element is, is that what we need to hear from them is that they're going to absolutely the border, they're not going to fund another dollar to, 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 for some other nation to defend and secure their borders without us securing and defending our own borders, and they're not going to pass another dime to DHS unless the Biden administration agrees to what I just outlined. There's been an interesting dynamic of the Border Patrol chiefs speaking out and really taking the opposite side of their boss, Alejandro Mayorkas. That is a rare dynamic. It doesn't happen often, but it is a real warning sign that the Border Patrol chiefs realize they, they owe the American people the truth. That's another key thing, and that's why you know my hats are off to, to Chairman uh, Mark Green, who serves as the chair of the House Homeland Security Committee. For the past six, seven months, he's been conducting an inquiry with respect to the dereliction of duty as Secretary Mayorkas. He went through a five-step process just a, a month ago. He completed the fifth and final stage of that, and now he was recommended impeachment proceedings for Mayorkas. In fact, next week, they're moving forward with official impeachment proceedings. And so he actually created this forum for the career border patrol agents uh, that under oath, they're going to do exactly what you said. They're going to be honest. They're going to tell the truth. And we know that from day one, this administration took the most secure border in a lifetime, and they intentionally unsecured it. And look, and I hear uh, on the impeachment side, John, I hear a lot of discussions. Well, you know, it's not going to go anywhere in the Senate. And who are we going to get to replace them? Look, that, that's not that, that's not should be what our concern about. Our concern is right. is that the Republicans are actually stepping up to hold somebody accountable. And this is what's going to be important. The actual impeachment proceedings is going to shed tremendous light on the dereliction of Secretary Mayorkas, his abdication of his oath, his refusal to enforce the law, and he's jeopardized our nation's safety because of it. We went from such a strong posture of, of prevention on your watch when you were the acting border commissioner. Uh, under Donald Trump. And it's amazing to watch it be disassembled in three years and see the jeopardy that we've put our country into. I want to pivot to the ICE report for a second, because not only was there an expression in the beginning of the report that there is a crisis at the border, and we're not going to lie, things are difficult, we're making the best with what we can do, but they weren't trying to pretend there wasn't, but they put out this extraordinary number that we, for the first time in our history, we now have 6 million illegal aliens that are in the country waiting for uh, court appearances. A lot of those court appearances are going to be in the next decade. Is it even possible? We heard Donald Trump and other people say, hey, we're going to do the largest mass deportation. It's going to be pretty darn hard to get rid of 6 million people, isn't it? It is. Oh, make no mistake. And think about it. And we also know of those 6 million people that are in a backlog, we know that 85% of them won't qualify for asylum. It's a fraudulent or invalid asylum claim, not to mention for the 1.8 million known Godaways just in the past 36 months. Oh, John, you're absolutely right. Make make no mistake. It's not going to be easy. But this is what I say, and I don't mean to be flip, but how are you going to do it? I say, hey, one at a time. 
right? We've got to start enforcing the law. It's not enough just to secure our borders and go after the cartels. We've also got to address the interior issues. If we don't send a message to those that not only are we going to prevent you from illegally entering, but if you sneak by us, we're going to apprehend you, and if you're here illegally, we're going to remove you. It's a whole of government approach. It's not just one aspect of the strategy. We've got to address each aspect of the strategy and each aspect of the issue. And, and you know, I'll steal a line from Tom Holman, and he's right. He's is that what we can do and need to do is enact and implement the United States' largest deportation effort that we've ever conducted. It's going to take a whole of government approach, but we can do it, John. Once the message is sent, hey, we're starting the roundup, we're starting the deportation yep. process, you might end up a few nights in the jail. That's uncomfortable. Uh, it's amazing how many people may voluntarily turn around and head across that border pretty quickly John, and get out of Dodge. John, you're absolutely right, we, and, and history has shown that. Every single time that yeah. we've actually enforced the law and put resources to it, that's exactly what we see. I want to turn to one other issue. Uh, it seems to me uh, the Biden administration is going to sue Texas and try to stop them from enforcing a law that says if you're an illegal alien on Texas land, we can arrest you as a violator because you're not in the country lawfully, therefore you're not in Texas lawfully. This opens up a debate that the Supreme Court last dealt with with Arizona a decade earlier on a similar law, though there are big differences in the two laws in terms of their legal rationale. Do you think the Supreme Court could come down in a different direction uh, on uh, Texas and how important would it be if states' rights were withheld and upheld and states could begin arresting illegal aliens? Well, so it's good. You outlined it perfectly because U.S. v. Arizona really didn't address the constitutional issue at play uh, right now. Uh, That really addressed a very narrow uh, part of it that, that said that states cannot enforce federal immigration law. That's not what's going to be before the court now. This is going to be a constitutional showdown, right? This is going to be the fact that that Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution says that it's the federal government's responsibility to protect the states from threats outside its borders. And if they fail to do that, Article 1, Section 10, we we refer to that as the state's self-help remedy, is that the states then can invoke that self-help remedy under the Constitution to step in and fill the role where the United States government fails to to protect its own state. That's what the governor is doing. So in essence, he won't be enforcing federal immigration law. He's going to he's availing himself as of the constitutional self-help remedy. That's what's going to be at, at question here. It's going to go to the Supreme Court, and I, I have no doubt that Governor Abbott is going to be on the right side of this. I'm going to paraphrase Congressman Chip Roy. If right now the Republicans, there's been no greater time. They've never had this much leverage right now to force the Democrats to actually reverse course on their open border policies. If they fail to take advantage of this, and if they don't pass meaningful border security uh, changes with this new, uh, with, with the, the the next budget proposal, the Republicans are going to actually own this crisis in this last election year in 2024. You can catch John Solomon's podcast on the Salem Podcast Network. Coming up, Biden has not fostered the Abraham Accords. When the Town Hall Review returns in a moment, stay with us. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. 
Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt, brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. As we look at our border, as we look at Putin's war of aggression in Ukraine, and as we look at Israel's war, it needs saying again, the world is a dangerous place. The question is whether we'll make it more dangerous or less by what we do and don't, by who we support or don't. And what this administration has done, there's no question about it, has made it a more dangerous place. We'll turn now to a regular and friend to my program, Brandon Weicker, with a look at this administration's wrong-headed approach to the Middle East. You get the sense almost that as, as re- okay, I'll say retrograde, uh, whatever, alien philosophy and, and theology Saudi Arabia rules itself by. I've always thought it was a sewer country. Um, because of the way it ruled its own people. But whatever you want to say about it, you've got to, I think, conclude that they're at least a bit more rational than Iran. They don't have that cognitive dissonance, or am I wrong? They seem much more rational. No, you're not wrong. And so really it's important to understand that the the Saudi regime, the House of Saud, first of all, is massive. Right. But So you've got lower-level princes who probably are supporting jihadists, networks just because they're upset they're never going to be getting their day to reign. Then you've got the upper crust who are running the show. And ever since 2003, there has been an evolution in the Saudis' leadership away from tacit, uh, you know, ambivalence or approval of jihadi activities abroad, so long as they didn't do it in Saudi Arabia, to a full-throated attack against al-Qaeda, ISIS, and other terrorist groups that eventuated in the rise of the current crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. Mohammed bin Salman may be brutal, he may be autocratic at times, but he's actually fairly progressive on human rights for a Saudi leader. What's more, he has striven to marry Saudi power, not only to American power, particularly when Trump was in office, but also to Israeli power, Mm. which was unheard of. And so you're right. The Abraham Accords was key for not only securing America's interests without us having to invade like we did in Iraq, but it was also key for securing America's interests with its allies to contain Iran. And that is all gone now because Biden has been at war with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia for human rights violations. He's done everything he can to damage the Israeli relationship. He has not fostered the Abraham Accords. Despite whatever he may say in public, he has done everything he can to destroy that alliance. And he's done everything he can, Biden has, and the Democrats, to empower and enhance Iran's standing in the region, all in an effort to basically pull the United States out of the Middle East and hand it over to the Iranians, who will then hand it over to China and Russia. Now, Iran's tentacles are not feckless uh, in all this. And what one worries about is if Iran is going to become ever more aggressive as a result of the fact that Saudi Arabia is becoming more and more situated as part of the community of nations with regard to Israel, etc. And if they are going to become more aggressive, Hezbollah, these attacks against Israel, The Washington Post outline of what would happen if Hezbollah decided to go all out against Israel with perhaps 150,000 rockets and missiles, and maybe that's an undercount. Maybe it isn't. Does Israel have the air defenses to fend that off? 
No. And in fact, the Washington Post is again ripping me off because a year ago when I was writing about this, writers over there were making fun of me because they said I was being, uh, you know, a warmonger. But as you know, chapter three or four of the Shadow War is all about the precision guided missile threat that Hezbollah poses to Israel. The reason you're seeing Israel striking now hard against targets in Lebanon, Hezbollah targets, is because they are trying to disrupt the ability for Hezbollah to launch the thousands of HMX-fueled precision-guided munitions that they have been building with Iran's help in Lebanon since 2016. In fact, there is a very real possibility that that Beirut blast in 2020 uh, that took out part of the port of Beirut was actually a uh, covert attempt by the West to knock out this massive and growing Iranian precision-guided munitions threat. It was in conjunction with the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, mm-hmm. um, because the Iranians at that time were getting ready for a huge terrorist offensive against Israel from Lebanon, and we were able to cut it out. Uh, but now that Biden's in charge, the Iranians have reconstituted these capabilities in Lebanon, and the Iranians, I think, through Hezbollah, are readying to strike very hard. Now, mind you, if they can fire those precision-guided missiles at Israel from Lebanon, the first target will be the ammonium nitrate storage facilities at the port of Haifa, which Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, has said would simulate the same effect as a dirty bomb going off, knocking out the port of Haifa as an economic hub for Israel and doing fundamental damage to their economy, which is the point. Coming up. The Great Migration Within the United States. Having been working in Hollywood, they don't like apostates any more than the Muslims do. When the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt returns in just a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. I'm Seth Liebson. I'm speaking to you today from my hometown and my home station here in Phoenix. Arizona has welcomed, who knows the exact numbers, but a lot of Californians in recent years, as has Florida and the Carolinas and Tennessee. Paul Simon is a novelist and playwright and author of American Refugees, the untold story of the mass migration from blue to red states. He was a guest of Dennis Prager. Among the people giving you blurbs at the back of the book, uh, it says uh, one of them is Tucker Carlson, and I love the ID, fired Fox News host. Yeah. We, we asked him what he wanted. He I, said, oh, I knew it. I, I knew it came from him. I had no the doubt. The publisher didn't want The publisher said, you can't say that. I said, sure, it's what he wants. Exactly. I think it's hilarious, actually. What prompted you to write the book? Well, in my life, I mean, uh, uh, in June 1 of uh, 2018, uh, after living roughly 50 years in Los Angeles, mostly in the Hollywood Hills, 
I uh, gave up and left, <laughs> as, as many have. And you have it, but I think I suspect that that you live, as I recall, up in the San Gabriel region, which is slightly different from where I was. I mean, I lived in a in the in the midst of the Hollywood whatever, and and uh, it was soon becoming overwhelmed by homeless and everything else, and it was we couldn't walk our dog and all the rest of it. And also, I wanted to see what life was like in the in the middle of our country, and I found out. And it it's a very interesting story. It's complicated. It's not simple, but it. I'm glad I did it. Was it easy, difficult, challenging uh, to make new friends? Uh, it was easier than I expected. Uh, but one of the reasons is that I play tennis, and I joined the club to play tennis. But... But uh, it, it, so what? And also, I had you know lost a lot of friends in L.A. Unfortunately, not you. You always remain one. But 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 I moved, as you know, from left to right, uh, really slightly before 9/11, but also finished off at 9/11. And having been working in Hollywood, they don't like apostates any more than the Muslims do. So <laughs> I was. I was already losing friends. Now I have a lot of friends here. A lot of them are evangelical Christians. And they're in one of the major themes of the book. And people who have already read it tell me this is one of the more interesting parts of it. Is that uh, I became more religious moving here as a Jew. So there and, is, and, yes, so there is an old saying. It was in German. And I don't know a German except the you know, rudimentary get along. So I don't know, but it, uh, so I can't repeat the saying, but the, basically it was the Jews are as Jewish as the Christians are Christian. Yes. I never heard that, but it is right to me. It's right. You know what it was? There's a, 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 a chapter near the end of the book called steeples, which is what people like a lot, this chapter. And, I just talk about how when I first arrived in this area, I, 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 I said, well, what are all these steeples? <laughs> just steeples everywhere. <laughs> and, you know, there was a church on every corner. And I joined this club to play tennis, and I went to the gym. It has a gym. And a guy I had just met at a political gathering for a candidate came up to me, shook his hand, said, uh, well, it's welcome. How you, how you like it so far? Everybody said that. Everybody was so nice. I thought there was a trick. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> well, if you live in New York, LA, that's right. What, what do you have in mind? <laughs> so he, so he said, "What church are you joining?" And I said, "Well, uh, I'm Jewish." So he said, "Oh, he did a beat, beat, you know." And then he said, "Well, which synagogue?" And as it turns out, there are five in the Nashville area. I ended up um, doing much of mine uh, at Chabad because the Chabad here is quite wonderful and has a terrific rabbi who was also, he was the brother of the rabbi in Berlin, the Chabad rabbi in Berlin, who was the one who, who initiated um, uh, the, the menorah lighting at the Brandenburg Gate. So... Uh, on this last issue about your your going to Nashville and ending up more religious, uh, it 
makes perfect sense to me. In, in, a, in the secular world, as I said earlier, Jews tend to be secular, and in the religious world, Jews tend to be more religious. This is, and I wrote a, I wrote a column you would have loved a few weeks ago uh, when uh, more Americans went to church, Jews were more secure. That's another factor. That uh, So true. So true. Yeah, of course. You're I living mean, it. You're living it. Almost gives me the shivers when you say that, actually, hmm. given what's going on in the world today. Right. Uh, you know, I you know, I take we take on, you know, it's a it's a, it's a book with I hope I, I, I write with wit, but but take on some pretty serious subjects in there, and, and including the question that comes up when you move is, uh, is this country going to fly apart, you know? Am I moving to a new country? Uh, will there be a civil war? I mean, all of these things have uh, are in the air. I mean, very much so in ways that they weren't when we were growing up, even remotely. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, so the, so the book is, explores those questions. Um, I I do it frequently with someone in the book who remains anonymous. Who wanted to go? Who goes under the the gnome de blog of Rocky Top from the country song Rocky Top, <clears throat> but who was actually an advisor to presidents uh, in Washington and an advisor to governors in Tennessee, uh, as, uh, but uh, but talks to me <clears throat> in, in the book, uh, shall we say, under the radar, right. Pulling things out from under rocks, so it makes them some mm-hmm. interesting talk. Why did you choose Tennessee and not Florida? Uh, you know, in a, in a way, um, my wife and daughter, who are very important to me, obviously, uh, preferred uh, Tennessee because they were extreme country music fans. Oh, I mean, I've always liked country music, um, and and as I said earlier in your show, it's a creative city, and so I wanted to be around creative people. Coming up. There's a huge rift in my own family, as there are in many families. A few more minutes with Paul Simon in the final segment of the Town Hall Review. Stay with us. Charlie Kirk here. It is critical we keep AM radio in all cars and all trucks. More than 80 million Americans depend on AM radio for news, weather, and opinions. AM is also the backbone of the emergency alert system, keeping you advised of threatening weather conditions and amber alerts. Text AM to number 52886. Tell Congress that we need AM radio in our cars. Again, text AM to the number 52886. Standard message and data rates may apply. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review. As we look back in time in the relatively recent history of our nation, 9-11 was an event that served as a wake-up for many on the left. The late Christopher Hitchens comes to mind, a lucid writer with a biting wit who did not necessarily become conservative, But he became steely-eyed on defense, convinced that there was something about this nation and his city, New York, that was very much worth protecting. The question now, did the events of October 7th create a similar phenomenon, a similar dynamic? Particularly, I should say, for American Jewry. Let's return for a few more minutes to Paul Simon with Dennis Prager talking about American refugees. Have the events of October 7th affected any of your friends as they watch the left support today's Nazis? 
I ask myself that question every day. I am not in the close enough communication to answer that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, it, it, uh, there's a huge rift in my own family, as there are in many families. And I am detecting slight change, and I'm detecting slight amounts of shame on the parts of the others. Fascinating. Uh, well, it, it, yeah. it, it, to delve into that, well, I'm very get, curious. Me too. Me too. Hmm. And to hmm. get people to admit they are wrong is very difficult. <laughs> well, it's the God that failed, as as was written in the late 40s by people yeah. who supported Stalin and then realized communism was indistinguishable from Nazism. Yes. Whitaker Chambers has always been, to me, the most fascinating character of Hmm. Almost all modern life. I mean, I'm I'm obsessed with his autobiography. Huh? Is he the one who said I went from the winning side to the losing side? <laughs> yes, among other things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously, I don't need names or or relationships, but the rift that you speak of in your family is in your extended family, your immediate family. No. Inter- too. I'm sorry. And really, both. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I believe in my own investigations, it's not uncommon. It's not oh, uncommon. okay. <laughs> no, uncommon is the other. Uh, yeah, listen, exactly. I I do this routinely because uh, I meet with conservative uh, people so often because so many uh, help uh, Prager you, and I meet with them, and one of the first things I say. And I say, of course, you don't have to answer me, but everybody does. How many children do you have? And they give me the number, and I say, what's your batting average? And they they don't even ask me, what do you mean? (laughs) And I'm asking, you know, what is the percentage of their children that shares their values? Only one-third of the time do all their children share their values. Well... I will tell you something that is par for me. I have three children, and that's exactly it. Thanks for joining us for the Town Hall Review. If you've benefited from what we're doing, would you do me a favor? Mention us to a friend. Send them to townhallreview.com to sign up for our podcast. Special thanks to executive producer Russell Shubin and producers Alex Perez, David Pouchon, and my own partner here in Phoenix, David Dahl. Let me say thanks once again to our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Seth Leibson thanking you for joining us at Town Hall Review. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.